0: It was initially more of a personal project, but what I found is the ability and the interest that the everyday American has in in interest in just helping people is incredible. Americans are incredibly generous.
1: In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief.
2: Welcome. Today we're piloting a new format for In Good Faith, a chance to explore and compare concepts, human experiences, or rituals across religious traditions. We hope these episodes allow you to better understand how different people in different places and with different beliefs negotiate the questions all humans have in good faith. In this episode, we'll discuss the importance of service and charitable work within different faith communities with six guests, all of whom have worked to make better the lives of those around them. We'll hear from brian and lorraine searing their regional directors with the just serve program in north america a service program and mobile app designed and released by the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints and we'll speak with navik kavalin a baha'i woman who worked at the u.n to forward gender equity among other global humanitarian goals and we'll hear from andrew robart a veteran and history teacher in flagstaff arizona who organizes community drives to support the Navajo Nation and Hopi reservations. This next hour is devoted to listening to stories of inspired service in good faith.
3: And then there's a prophetic statement that is mentioned. Actually, I begin to love him on a special love that's even deeper, a deeper love when he does extra acts. And then I become the eyes in which he sees, the hands in which he moves, and the feet in which he walks.
2: That was Jesse Maroney, outreach coordinator for Link Outside. Jesse himself served a prison sentence in Connecticut during which time he became a follower of Islam. And he'll share his story with us in just a minute. But first, let's learn more about Link Outside from Amin Eshekar, the program manager.
4: Link Outside, in some ways, is similar to other prison ministries. Um, obviously, we're coming from an Islamic perspective, but essentially, we are trying to be a one-stop shop for basically anybody who's impacted by the incarceration system and is seeking to further their Islamic foundation and understanding. So some of the things that we offer are in-person prison visits. And for those that we can't see in person, we have a large variety of services that reaches almost 40 states, impacting thousands of people across the country. And so those include mail correspondence, book donations, religious studies correspondence courses. And for those who are Re-entering society. We provide support to help during that transition time and doing it from an Islamic perspective, but we do have folks from different backgrounds as well.
2: You call the organization Link Outside. And I wonder, could you just walk me through maybe an example of someone that you work with inside and then as they come out when they're released?
4: Yeah, you know, I have a a perfect example. Uh, We'll call him Abdul Wali. And so this is a person that we met Doing our prison visits. There's a local county jail here, so we visited him several times, maybe several months, and then he he ended up getting a six-year sentence. So now he's shipped upstate or to a facility that we can't, you know, easily get to. So continue to write to us, and so we over the course of the next six years through our correspondence and classes and and books that we were offering him. He definitely matured in him, not only in in terms of his personality, but also in his spiritual or religious understanding. And so he just actually got released about maybe three months ago. And because his hometown is not too far from where we're based out of, so we've been keeping in in touch. So when he got released, he called. So literally, I'm I'm with my wife and, and daughter Hanging out at the beach, so uh, on the way home, I <laughs> stop by, pick them up, you know we, we go we go out. Um, it's just like that, you know, and and so, but but it's an investment that you're giving somebody.
2: Jesse, I wonder if I could ask you uh, how you became attached to Islam. How did you first learn about it when you were serving time?
3: Unfortunately, you know, I made a lot of sporadic and irrational decisions as a youth that landed me uh, to serve actually a 10-year prison sentence overall during the course of my early adulthood. Ultimately, what had happened is I started to kind of like come to this conclusion and look at myself when I was first initially incarcerated and start to see that I had some huge deficiencies inside of myself and I really wanted to change. And so I started uh, taking Ohio University courses. And in the morning, I would see, you know, especially when you're in a prison environment, there's select individuals that you see that are really striving sometimes to really uh, change. You see this actual uh, great movement within them, and most of them get up early in the morning. Um, you'll see the the early birds are the ones who are getting the worm. Um, they're either reading, they're working out, and so that was kind of my time to go out there and do a little workout and then study. And ultimately, what started to happen, I started to see that the Muslims were up at the same time. They were usually up. early in the morning they were like reciting arabic or they were going over something something really deep not just so superficial so what intrigued me a lot ultimately was not only that just the simplicity of the belief system but also too that there was actually active action that had to go behind it there was actually prayer that had to be done there was a character uh, that needed to be embodied to not only see our belief, but also to to really experience God through our morality to other human beings. And so I saw this and, you know, I, I articulate it well now, but that was just the feeling at that time. Not only that, I seen individuals who couldn't read at one point actually become interested in reading. Uh, I saw individuals who probably, you know, had murdered people that they wouldn't even want to harm a fly anymore. So I saw this drastic change. And not only that, they were able to, like, speak Arabic, some of them. And I was like, wow, how did this happen? And I said, hold on, something's really going on here.
2: You know, I read a little bit in the Los Angeles Times about this program, and one of the the folks who was part of this says, we wanted someone to hear us to recognize our humanity and our spirituality, which it sounds like you're doing, and that idea that they're part of a community when they are released. And Jesse, I wonder if I could ask you, how was that transition for you from being inside to coming outside?
3: It was kind of tough. Um, One of the reasons why was because Number one, I accepted Islam when I was in prison, so I don't know what actually, you know, Islam outside of a prison uh, facility kind of looks like. You know, this is my first experience to a mosque. Right. uh, First time with, you know, individuals overall who were immigrants that I had never seen before because my bubble of life was basically the African-American community. And white community. That was pretty much it, and maybe a sprinkle of Dominican and Cuban that were in my area. But I never had interacted with Pakistanis, um, Bangladeshis, Arabs, and never, never have interacted with them. It was, um, it was, it was a, a quite, I would say, frightening at some level, you know. And um, also, too, I came with a stigma on me because I had a big. Um, bracelet around my ankle that monitored me. Mm. And so that was pretty, you know, apparent when I walked into the mosque and many questions were actually asked. And then also, too, there was this thing, okay, this guy that came from prison and now he's converted to Islam. And um, it was a very interesting thing because, you know, I was invited to some people's houses a couple of times and, you know, something had come up missing within the house and then later they found it, but they first blamed me. But also, too, overall, what I would say is, is that after... People established that I wasn't like a direct threat and they kind of got over some of the stigma that's usually put on people who are previously incarcerated. It was actually a lot of love and comfort. And then what started to actually happen, they had seen that I had actually sat down and studied something um, that I actually knew a little bit more than what they actually initially thought. And then after a while, especially in the Connecticut area first, I started to actually teach the children about Islam in the community. And they actually felt safe with me actually teaching their children because actually I could understand certain things you know what their kids are going through. Some of them are smoking marijuana now. Some of them are thinking about girls or boys and things of this nature. And I kind of know the culture to kind of give them some understanding what's happening when they begin to actually interact in these different, you know, in, uh, in school. So it was a very interesting uh, situation. It was like, I became like part of this melting pot of like, of these different cultures and everything and getting to understand everything and eating different types of foods and different types of attitudes, you know, because certain cultures, they talk very loud. Some don't. And I took, (laughs) I had to, it was, it was this very interesting process of kind of just gelling with the community and bringing my own unique value to the
2: community that they hadn't seen before. I'm putting myself in your place thinking this would be quite a moment to go back to prison to teach or to connect with people. I don't know. How did that feel? Tell me the story of when you first went back to do that.
3: So the first time that I went back to prison was actually in Connecticut. I had gotten asked by a local individual. They said, could somebody come and actually give the the Eid or this special day in Islam celebration day speech and prayer? You know, I was very excited, right? Because this is actually something that I had asked for when I was inside prison praying to God. -hmm. I was asking basically, can I be of service? Can I help out? Can I come back into these places and really show the light of Islam? And so it was very exciting, but then also, too, there was a lot of trauma that still had been buried within me. So I start hearing the chains, I start hearing the doors clack, I start hearing the guards yell, I start seeing they all wear one color, and it looks all kind of just like this. You know, like, like people are just humanly warehoused. Yeah. And so you start feeling this again. You start feeling some of these pressures and these experiences and these negative experiences that you had. And you have to kind of like begin to override them. But it was almost like just walking back, like I was actually nervous about going back to prison. And so it was, it was a lot. And I could really feel and empathize with the guys. Uh, but then I also too had to start making this clear distinction that you know, I am not incarcerated anymore. As I began to actually do this, do this a little bit more, and so that was a, it was a wake up call. It was, a, it was a huge wake up call for me.
2: But as you've done that, it seems like that would be very satisfying that you can help people connect to a community and to learn.
3: Uh, many times when you're incarcerated, a lot of times you feel like you're left on this own island, especially when it comes to the Muslim community, we're already a minority in this country anyways. I was on a, a prison visit where an individual, um, he did almost about thirty years in prison. And he mentioned that through his 30 years of incarceration, there was only just a handful of Muslims that actually came to uh, reach out. And that this was like a huge breath of fresh air, especially when not not only did I bring myself, but I brought other community members, I brought women so that they could get introduced to these different people to understand what they're kind of getting into once they reach into society. It's been such an amazing gift from God to be able to be that bridge. But there's only so much that you possibly can do Um, And so you try to give them the best tools so that they can ultimately, um, you know, try to take on the challenge themselves. And that's kind of like where that that's the most hurtful part that I can't help them through the whole process all the time. But ultimately, not helping them through the whole process is going to actually make them stronger.
2: I mean, I was going to ask, this is really trying to see people who are in prison as human beings, as people and my limited times that I've been to different events at prisons, both for religious services or otherwise to visit. The first thing I noticed is, oh, we are all just one choice away from being in this same situation. Did you have to learn to see inmates as people?
4: Anytime you're going into a prison environment, there's always going to be a learning process involved. Part of it was being in tune with a lot of the issues going on in the, in the urban community, a lot of that kind of helped break the ice, but you're still going to have a lot of the stereotypes from popular culture and media of what prison life is like. You know, you have this image of a, of a very violent place where there's a lot of tension in the air and conflict arising, and you find out it's quite the opposite in that, in fact, sometimes I feel more tranquility there than I do on the outside. So the individuals you see there their character, the, the prophetic manifestation of, of the belief that they're practicing and the brotherhood, a sisterhood they have between each other, just how they carry themselves. I've rarely, rarely seen that type of character on the outside world. And I've, I've traveled to many different countries, been on pilgrimages, and I've never seen it to that extent. So there is something absolutely special. And it's one of those things you just got to go and see it to find out. So, how has this changed you? I really kind of had a big perspective change, and I think a lot of ministry within our faith group is, is you know, very heavily emphasizing on profitalization, right? You know, obviously, you know, spreading the, the message of of God's word and, and revelation is something noble, but if that becomes a very one dimensional uh, approach, and I, I think you really, you know, you can be doing more <laughs> damage than you can good. And and so, what I learned over time is that. What we're really there is just showing that the community hasn't forgotten them. And when you start realizing on a deeper level, okay, well, this person is dealing with some kind of trauma. This person is dealing with past relationships that have you know impacted their life. And maybe they have some kind of hardship waiting for them at home. You start actually looking at it more like on a human to human basis. And you start learning things about yourself. I'm looking at it in a very one-dimensional way. I need to start learning more about the background, the the past histories, trauma, the the different neighborhoods that these individuals are, are coming from to really maximize the amount of good that you have. And and again you know, a lot of the stuff you can't read in a book. You can't go and watch a YouTube video and, and figure this out. <laughs> you really just have to go in and maybe spend, ye- spend years of, you know, talking to people and, and finding out what
3: works, what doesn't work. A lot of times, I think kind of like what Amin mentioned, you know, that you're actually going in there when you have come into a one-dimensional mindset that you're helping, um, you're kind of blocking off that you're actually going to learn from people who have experienced some of the deepest levels of, of human existence, meaning like themselves. And that not only with inside of themselves did they find something really amazing many many times because they have to deal with continuous you know, fighting of depression or certain lowly thoughts. And they begin to develop this beautiful resistance and this optimism that sometimes until somebody actually brings it and says, wow, look at really how beautiful you are and look how much power you have, they don't really see it. I guess Amin probably can attest to this that these people have dreams tremendously changed our lives even me and I was previously incarcerated just by continuous interaction with them um, has not only enriched our understanding of our belief but has made our belief actually experiential meaning that we have now we have experiential knowledge of it it's not just
2: theoretical Thank you to Amin shaker and Jesse Maroney from link Outside for speaking with us. Amin and Jesse's prison ministry is an incredible example of how you can help those who most need love and compassion. I hope you're feeling inspired. Amin told me he turned a local and informal outreach effort into a national nonprofit organization motivated by the need to create something sustainable that could reach beyond his own personal efforts. That result is astounding. And it started with the simple act of answering letters from people searching for connection as they explored their faith. Think of how many lives have been changed because Amin and his friends were willing to respond, willing to act for God in this situation. Later in the hour, we'll hear about another formal organization called Just Serve from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And we'll speak with regional directors of the program, Lorraine and Brian Searing. Also in the Los Angeles area is Nava Cavallin, who spoke over Zoom with our producer Heather Bigley to discuss her experience at the United Nations as a senior researcher and writer representing the Baha'i international community. Nava's discussion gives us a behind-the-scenes perspective on how religious organizations contribute to creating solutions to ongoing global challenges in a specific political context.
5: This is Worship to serve mankind and to minister to the needs of the people. Service is prayer. A physician ministering to the sick, gently, tenderly, free from prejudice, and believing in the solidarity of the human race, he is giving praise.
6: You know, I'm coming at this from the perspective of charitable work, and what I'm seeing is achieving gender equality as a service or a charitable work? I think that
5: the equality of women and men is a tremendous service to humanity. Like, we need that equality. Part of our instability as a global society is in this inequality of women and men. And there's so much that women bring To every arena that they participate in that helps like elevate those arenas, especially when they've had the capacity, they've had the opportunity to build their capacity. And so humanity in a way is kind of like lopsided because women aren't able to participate equally with men in many places and in every arena. So this would bring so much prosperity to the world if women were truly equal
6: with men. Your time with the U.N. seems like they've had a representative since the 1940s at mm-hmm. the U.N., but why is that sort of something that they do and want to do and make possible?
5: Every faith group has an opportunity to have representation at the U.N. So one is to sort of like be there right along with the other religions, representing faith, faith-based perspectives and, and making sure that like the spiritual dimension of life is taken into consideration in, in major policies and, and like ethical considerations. The other reason and why I think the Baha'i faith has been associated with the UN from a very, like from its very inception is because in the Baha'i faith, one of the central teachings of the founder Baha'u'llah is that the time has come for humanity to unite and to overcome any kind of prejudice that would prevent us from embodying like our our potential oneness And he's forbidden warfare and really elevated like the cause of peace as one of the most important for humanity today. And the UN is the main body that exists to sort of safeguard the peace of humanity. So the Baha'i community considers it a very important organization. And I was the senior researcher and writer. So there are a number of discourses that are unfolding at the UN. So there's a discourse on gender equality. There's a discourse on media and gender equality. There's a discourse on climate change. There's a discourse on technology and you know, all of these issues that are pressing for humanity today, the Baha'i international community chooses which discourses it wants to participate in. It doesn't participate in all of them because there are so many. But it chooses which ones it thinks are the most important and where we have experience to share, or at least teachings that are relevant to that. And so my job was to sort of follow these discourses that the Baha'i community was wanting to engage in. And to see, like, well, what is the UN saying about this? What is academia or the scientific community saying about this? And what do the Baha'i writings say about this? And then, based on understanding those kind of three perspectives, sometimes writing like a formal statement or, or drafting like talking points for our representatives who are sort of like the ambassadors of the Baha'i community. So it was a lot of research. It was more research than anything else, but sometimes it was writing speeches and sometimes it was writing formal statements that became part of the UN library. I think if, if we had to sum it up in one goal, and I think there were many, but the primary goal is like, we want to help humanity achieve peace. And there are a lot of obstacles and we have like a particular theory of change that is somewhat distinct. And so I think what we would most want to offer is like that theory of social change. And so if I had to summarize that, it would it would be, I think Gandhi said the ends are inherent in the means or another way we you could phrase it is that means and ends should be coherent. So if our cause is like the cause of peace and unity, then also our ways of pursuing it have to be like peaceful and united. And... As a global community, you know, we have Baha'i communities in war-torn countries, in neighborhoods where there are like rival gangs, in all kinds of conditions. And we're learning a lot about how to bring people together under those conditions. And we want to share that with others because we think that that experience is valuable and could be scaled up and replicated, even if you're not turning to God as like the source of it. And so we try to figure out what are the lessons that we've learned that like no matter what your religious beliefs are or aren't, you can still apply them and it can still bring about a more more peaceful society.
6: So this leads into my question about your work as writer and director for glimpses into the spirit of gender equality. And you're also in the film, you're a commentator too. So why a film like, and what were the hopes for the film? Um, I have lots of questions about it. So go ahead and talk to us about that.
5: So the film uh, is called glimpses into the spirit of gender equality. And it was released for the 25th anniversary of something called the Beijing Declaration and Platform for Action. For those who don't know, it's a global compact that governments signed in 1995 in Beijing at a world conference on women. There had been a series of world conferences and that was the final one. And this global compact had 12 critical areas that governments agreed to, to sort of like promote and safeguard the rights of women and girls around the world. So like one of them is the education of the girl child and from 1995 to now there's so many more young girls having access to education and that's like a win the the reason that we wanted to release a film was because we felt that there was there was a lot of pessimism in the world around the rights of women all over the world and a feeling that everything was being lost. And if you looked at the facts, it wasn't actually true. There were some things that were being threatened, but also a lot of progress had been made. And if you don't look at progress, you also don't learn from what worked. And so I think we had a feeling of like, what are the strengths of the global community? Which local communities are learning a lot, regardless of whatever's happening politically? What are these communities learning about moving forward? Because political things change, and and they're not always in your hands. But as communities and as individuals, you can still move forward. So how do you do that? You know, one of the things that we that we highlight in that film is there are certain communities where women are still excluded from formal educational spaces, or if the families have to choose, they educate the boys, not the girls. And so we were looking at local communities where they really create spaces for informal education for girls as well, if the girls aren't able to participate in formal education. But sort of like in these informal spaces where no one is paying for the teachers, no one is providing infrastructure, it's volunteers. You know, it's people giving their time to make sure that every member of that community, the boys and the girls, have an opportunity to learn. And so it just really requires service. And knowing that you're doing something because it's the right thing to do and it will benefit everyone,
6: even if you don't get any financial reward or recognition for it. So then you make this film and then it seems like that was the impetus, perhaps, for you to start your own media company? So every year at the UN, there's um,
5: an event, I guess you could call it, called the Commission on the Status of Women. They review like governments from around the world, people in um, the social arena, NGOs all come together. It's like nine thousand people come. It's it's one of the biggest events that happens at the UN every year, twenty eighteen or twenty nineteen. The review theme was the impact of media on women and girls and how women were represented in media. And I was so taken with the research that I was doing on the on the review theme. And I had just finished some research on youth radicalization, which was like pretty upsetting. But this research just hit me in a different way, like seeing the the effects on women of media in most countries, including the United States, was extremely damaging. And I knew that it was somewhat damaging, but it was like much more damaging than I thought. And a lot of it has to do with the proliferation of pornography, which people don't wanna talk about, but it has like devastating consequences and it's so widespread. I felt really strongly that I didn't just want to like study it, but I wanted to create media that was better. And I was like, well, how do I do that? (laughs) Uh, But it was like something that I was thinking about. And I, you know, with another colleague, we pitched to our office, them letting us make short films to start sharing some of our ideas. And so she and I started working together with like young filmmakers and producers. And basically I ended up meeting all of these people in media and forming relationships So the the two things were happening in parallel. I was working at the UN during the day. And then at night, I was like studying, how do you write a script, a series Bible? Like, although I loved my work at the UN, I was even more passionate about media. It just was like a fire that I didn't know I had. Um, And so I decided to kind of pivot to that. So much of my identity is predicated on doing work that I think is good and, and important and like a service to others. Anyone, however you approach your work, there's a spirit that you can approach it that elevates it to service. If you're really thinking about the well-being of others, if you're really thinking about improving the spaces that you're part of or contributing to their elevation. And so that's like something that I've tried to bring with me into the work that I'm doing now. And then the kind of content that we create and that we focus on as a company, we have like a a very clear vision that we don't ever want to make something that's harmful to young people in particular, and that we also want to elevate women in the work that we do. And so we like hire a lot of women. Like right now we're working with female animators, which is unusual. There's not that many. And so trying to like bring these principles to the fore and how we practice what we're doing uh, has been really important.
2: That was producer Heather Bigley speaking with Nava Kavalin, former senior researcher and writer at the UN, now CEO of a media production company, about how our intention can elevate any of our work into service for others. Nava's work at the UN and Amin and Jesse's efforts from earlier in the show are both within formal organizations with national and global reach. It's incredible to think about how God works through those who have the means and the ability to act on a big stage. But most of us perform service in our day-to-day lives on a much smaller scale, reaching out to a neighbor or friends or co-workers and hoping to help and heal. Sometimes this means organizing meals for a family after a loved one's death or doing yard work for an older neighbor. Our next guest, Andrew Robarge, started his efforts the very same way, hearing of a local need and acting to fulfill it. Andrew is a U.S. Naval Reserves veteran and a teacher in Flagstaff, Arizona.
0: The need is great and we cannot just sit back And not help fellow Christians, but fellow human beings that are imprinted by God.
2: Andrew's proximity to the Navajo Nation and Hopi Reservation pushed him to create community drives for firewood, water, and winter clothing to support the work of United Natives and Shield of Faith Ministries, both located in northern Arizona. We spoke at length with Andrew in March, and we include an edited version of his remarks here. So it's one thing to think, wow, this is a bad situation. Somebody ought to do something. But you took the next step. What was the first thing you did? How did you get started in this?
0: My wife, uh, Rebecca, is a doctor, and she finished her med school on the East Coast and then her residency in Phoenix and the people who paid for her med school were the Indian Health Service and so we actually moved up to Flagstaff and we're actually deployed up here in Flagstaff and so she works with the Navajo Nation and essentially what we heard is that this one lady Rosalina who is an elder on the Navajo Nation she really needed firewood this again this was before the pandemic this is bc before covid right <laughs> And I thought, oh, okay, well, we'll get her some firewood. And so we went and bought some firewood, and I drove out to the Navajo Nation after school. I met up with one of the nurses that works with them, and I dropped it off. And you get a firsthand look at what she is dealing with some of the most basic necessities that I think a lot of us just take for granted the ability to just go to a white box on the wall and push an up arrow or a down arrow for hot or cold. That doesn't exist for so many people that are so close to us. I mean, we're not talking another country, another continent. We're talking a half an hour down the road. And I, I saw that firsthand. And I was able to speak with Rosalina, who actually spoke Dine, the language of the Navajo. And I was able to just converse with her through Irene. And I remember driving back from the Navajo Nation that night, almost Indignant. I had this sort of palpable rage, if you will. It annoyed me. I was so unbelievably frustrated. Like, this is America. How are people living like this in the richest country, essentially, in world history? How do we still have this? And I think that just lit a fire that has just really been burning brightly uh, for the last, geez, it's been a couple of years now.
2: So you got home from that experience and was this just at a first a personal project or did you immediately start saying, hey, let's get other people together?
0: It was initially more of a personal project. But what I found is the ability and the interest that the everyday American has in, in interest in just helping people is incredible. Americans are incredibly generous people Uh, The data proves that and the billions we give away to aid. And in my experience, I've seen that as well. So what I found is a lot of people just didn't know. They had no clue that one third of people on the Navajo Nation don't have access to Things like a stable source of heat. And once you bring that to people's attention and then you give them a way to support, whether it be a GoFundMe account, a Facebook, an Instagram post, something on Twitter, and you say, Hey, I'm collecting firewood, I'm doing this or that, you get a lot of people who are just, oh my goodness, yes, I can support. I can do this. I can spend six dollars here. I have wood sitting in my backyard. Do you want it? Come get it. It's been aging for years now. And so once that initial meeting with Rosalina, it's really expanded greatly from there. And so I really, I try to bring and incorporate my kids into this as well. When my daughter was three years old, she learned how to use a wood splitter. And so she would come out and push the handle down, push the hammer down and split the log. She, you know, she had ear protection. I bought her little kid gloves. She had ear protection, eye protection, but my, both my kids will come out with me, they'll split logs, they'll load up families, whether it be from Dene Hotzo, uh, Loop, Bird Springs, on the Hopi, wherever it is, they'll load up families. And my hope is that they'll see this happening and really sort of remember maybe some of these lessons of service and watching out for other people. And we always have this conversation about, you know, who does God tell us to help? Who does he tell us to serve? And I, they always come back like, Everyone, I say, absolutely. Even people who don't believe in Jesus, we've got to help them. We always have to support people who are in need because we have so much. And so, I think the idea of service is even more palpable when you go out on the to the reservation or do wood drops, or families come in and pick up stuff, and you meet other kids who don't have any of the opportunities that my kids have just for being born
2: in my family. Just as far as getting wood, I I picture you walking out and chopping down pine trees in Flagstaff, but <laughs> there there must be some organized way that you did this.
0: I like to think we we worship a God that is all in our business, that wants to be in our business, that wants to take an active role in our lives, and wants to you to see His work. So aware, I saw this almost immediately, and this is where the wood operations have expanded dramatically. The Coconino Forest Service was doing this massive wood giveaway. And so I got my truck fueled up. I was all ready. I woke up at, you know, three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning. I drove out there. The line was already incredibly long. I'm talking hundreds of cars deep to go and get it up off of Mount Humphreys. I waited there for a couple hours and then realized, like, this isn't going to happen. There are too many cars. The giveaway is not going to give. And so I turned my car around. And as I'm driving back down the mountain, I'm just sitting there just verbalizing this prayer. I'm like, what, what is going on? Like, come on, God. Like, people are cold. People need heat. Like, what? how is this happening? Okay, this is like within 45 minutes of saying that prayer and going down the mountain. I run into one of my good buddies, Tyler Williams, and I'm just like pouring out to him. And I'm just like, man, I, I can't believe it's so frustrating. We can't get firewood. And he listens, he goes, hey, man, I work for one of the developers. We're dropping trees all the time. (laughs) We can get you free wood. (laughs) I was like, what? It just blew my mind. Like literally within 45 minutes of despondency to 45 minutes later being like, yeah, we have more trees than we know what to do with. And we throw them all away. And ever since then, uh, we have had a surplus of firewood uh, that has been coming through of various woodlots that we've been able to procure. So it has been it has been unreal, the fact that the ability of God to just be like, I got this. I told you I got this. And I'd delay. I'd be like, he doesn't have it. Oh, this will not going to work. And then he's like, no, I told you, I got this. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so tell me about Shield of Faith Ministries and United Natives working together now to help this happen.
0: United Natives is an organization that was founded by Dr. Crystal Lee. She is from the Navajo Nation, and she saw this incredible need. And she uh, reached out to a couple of the doctors up here in Winslow, up in Flagstaff. That's how my wife got involved. I got involved. And when all the schools shut down, I had a lot more free time to do these drives. So, My house ended up being a point of delivery for just tons and tons of supplies. So just random Americans that had heard about United Natives, heard about the plight of the Navajo and the Hopi, we started getting just pallets of delivery. And it got so crazy. I think I got on a one-on-one basis with the lady who was delivering the mail. And it got to such an extent they began sending their own mail truck just to my house to unload. They filled up an entire mail truck that were delivering supplies to me of hand sanitizers, uh, wipes, cleaning supplies. And so that was the United Natives thing, sort of the umbrella. And underneath United Natives, one specific church we got linked up with was Shield of Faith Ministries run by Earl and Irene Behe. They're based out of Bird Springs, which is about a couple miles outside of Loop, Arizona. And Irene is a nurse in Winslow with my wife. So I linked up with her through my wife. And they just have this incredible network and this ability via their congregation to pick up supplies, distribute supplies, get them the people in need. And so they have essentially become almost a point of delivery within the Navajo Nation.
2: You mentioned Rosalina and seeing her need and dropping off wood there. Are there other times you've been able to not just send things, but see where they ended up and who they ended up with and see the difference that made?
0: The short answer is I actively try not to do that. And the reason being is I want the deliveries and I want the supplies, especially the firewood. I really want them coming from Navajo or coming from Hopi, helping other Hopi, helping other Navajo. I really want it to have a Navajo face of, you know, Navajo helping other Navajo, Hopis helping other Hopis. And I am more than happy to be the man behind the scene, if you will, making sure the supplies have a steady flow, but if if it's someone from the community helping another person from the community, it's community helping community. It's building up the community as well. And I think that's just really powerful for community members to see other community members as the, as the help.
2: If you think of your faith life, what are the things that bring you the most joy? I think for me, it is, seen a god that is
0: nowhere close to a clockmaker. When God created the world, he did not just roll a clock, wind it up and let it go and step back. Right? He is he wants to be in your life. He wants a relationship. He wants to be involved in your life. He wants you to invite him into your life and he desperately wants to show you how much more you can do through him. That line of going up Humphreys, sure, I could have sat in that line for probably another three more hours and maybe got a truckload of wood, maybe a cord of wood. But by going through that experience and then going through that hardship, he's like, boy, just just wait, I'm about to blow your mind (laughs) in like a (laughs) couple months here. I'm gonna rock your world. You thought you were getting a cord of wood. How about I drop hundreds of cords on your head? And then maybe you'll wake up to me being like, I created the universe. What do you think? A couple cords of wood is hard for me? Please watch out. I'm coming through.
2: (laughs) That was Andrew Robarge sharing his enthusiasm and experience serving his neighbor in Northern Arizona. I'm so impressed by Andrew's passion and his desire to help solve problems. I'm sure you felt that. He was able to channel his work into a larger effort by connecting with community. He didn't need or want personal recognition. He does want to pass on those habits to his children, though, and help them understand how to serve people around them. And why? He told us, for God and country. Our last interview today is with Brian and Lorraine Searing members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and regional directors for the Just Serve program in North America. Lorraine and Brian spoke with Heather Bigley over Zoom from their home in Heber, Utah.
7: We follow the teachings of Jesus and we try to follow his example. And Christ, for us, was the perfect example of service and reaching out to people in need. And so we have a desire to live our lives like that. So we look for opportunities to serve not only in the community, but to serve family members, friends, people in need, people around us.
6: Tell us about the Just Serve program. How is it developed? Why? Who can participate? How? Just sort of give us an overview of this program. Back in 2006, two
1: leaders of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints Elder M. Russell Ballard and Elder Richard J. Maines wanted to see more people in every community coming together to serve the needs of the community. And so they had a vision to connect the world through community service. And JustServe.org was launched in 2012. And from the very first day it was launched, JustServe has been available for anybody who wants to search for local volunteer opportunity. It's free for the volunteer, and it's free for the nonprofit to list their volunteer needs. The site and the app were developed by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and they consider it a free gift to every community that JustServe is
6: in. So that actually... Makes me think that this program has a huge potential to be an interfaith initiative. Is that a goal of the program?
7: It's definitely a goal of the program. the The vision was all people of the community coming together, regardless of religion, age, uh, ethnicity, any any walk of life, coming together to serve in the community and take care of the community.
1: We have specifically been working to build interfaith just councils or community just councils among the volunteers that we are over. in so in communities across North America, where either congregants of multiple faiths come together to perform community service on a regular basis or a community council, which can include churches, nonprofits, people from universities or schools be part of the council, the only purpose of the council, whether it's interfaith or community, is to focus on community service, not theology, not political agendas. And they would rotate leadership quarterly based on alphabetical name. This is a great way for communities to come together, do a quarterly community service project. And what we have found is that fires them up, want to do it. Well, this was great. Let's do something else the next quarter. And so we have been encouraging each of the communities, the volunteers that we are over to create one of these either interfaith or community gesture council in their areas over the next year.
7: One of these councils uh, called the Gillette Assistance League out of Gillette, Wyoming. When our local gesture specialist heard about this idea of and Interfaith Gesture of Council. Um, she immediately latched onto it. She worked together. They had already been doing a few service projects with some other churches in that community, the ones that were working together. And they said, let's just kind of formalize this and organize this and do this on a regular basis. There was a local Catholic Church, the local Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints congregation. The Spanish-speaking Catholic congregation um, also participates, the Episcopal Church does. And even the AARP chapter local, they said, we wanna be involved. So schools got involved and they come together. And what they really focused on is providing snack bags for children from food insecure families. They worked with the schools in the area. They've identified 600 children through the school counselors. They put together on a quarterly basis thousands of snack bags that are non-perishable that they give to the school counselors to distribute to those children so that they have snacks over the weekend that they can take home and be taken care of. And I just love seeing this. It's all coming together. It's all working together. And there's growing relationships in the community, but they're also taking care of people in their community. So there's this feeling of love there that hadn't been quite as strong a year ago, and now it's growing stronger every day.
6: You guys have told us lots of sort of organizational background on the program. So what are some experiences that you've had with the program, and why are they important to you, and why would they be important to potential volunteers?
7: So so we could spend the whole time talking about this. (laughs) We have seen so many good, beautiful stories coming out of the area. I'll just tell one that I really love. A few years ago, the town of Security Colorado ended up with a tainted water supply, and they had a toxin that showed up in their testing of the water supply. So suddenly, all those residents of that community could not drink or use the local water. Uh, the local food bank, Care and Share, uh, went into action. They immediately procured um, bottled water so that the uh, people would have something to drink. They just needed a way to distribute it to the residents. So the reached out to their contacts. Uh, there's a the local Catholic church there decided that uh, they had a large enough parking lot that they could arrange for a, a place for people to come and pick up the water. So they donated the, the space and the time to be able to do that. And then they reached out to just serve Karen Sher reached out to just serve, to us and said we need volunteers. So we put the word out through the website. And through all the contacts that we have started to make that we need volunteers to come in, they were going to be distributing water every Friday um, for six weeks straight. So they needed people who were showing up all those times, like 100 people showing up to help on each of those days during the day when they put the word out through the media to the residents that they could come and pick up bottled water so that those who couldn't afford to normally purchase something like that would be able to come and get enough supplies to take care of their family needs for a week. We had uh, three days to pull that together. We ended up with our 100 volunteers who were there. Uh, Cars would drive up. They would just open their trunk and the volunteers would drop however many cases of bottled water they felt they needed for their family into their trunk. And then they would go off on their way. And we just hear stories coming from people who would recognize the volunteers later um, and say, wow, you're the one who put water in my trunk and, you know, you're important to me.
6: I love these thoughts. They're all beautiful. But I also know that sometimes volunteer work can be really frustrating. (laughs) Things don't always go the way you think they're going to go. And so I'm wondering, what are things in your own sort of religious education or spiritual education that help ground you when you're facing maybe a challenge or a difficulty that was unexpected?
1: I call service the great equalizer or unifier. Because when you serve side by side with someone, differences, no matter what they are, absolutely do not matter. Service as a way of uniting people. And again, differences don't, don't make a difference when you're serving side by side.
7: And I would say the differences don't seem to make a difference whether you're the giver of service or the receiver of service. Because we, we all need service at different points in our lives. So um, it's truly an equalizer in so many ways.
1: We have a church leader at one time that said, if you're not happy, you're probably too focused on yourself. Get out and serve others. And I just think when we do that, you think, my life may not be as as bad as I think it is. And service, I think it makes you feel God's love. Service sometimes comes along when it's not convenient, and yet you're always edified when you um, partake in helping somebody
7: else, I remember being a young man, and every time my dad said we're going to go do <laughs> some sort of service project, always saying, "Well, I don't want to do that." Kudos to him for saying, "No, you're you're going to do that. We're going to go do that together." And because I always came away from it so glad that I had participated. Took me a long time to learn it, um, which doesn't say very much about my character, but I'm so glad that he was persistent and continued to help me to learn that serving others, though it may not be convenient and though it may not go as planned, is always a good thing. There's uh, being able to connect with other people, being able to help other people, um, being able to give of yourself. There's just always blessings and good that comes from that.
6: And has your experience performing charitable acts or service, has that changed your understanding of God?
7: It's, it has made me feel more understanding of the kind of being that he is, because I believe that God blesses all people, regardless of their circumstances, regardless of their backgrounds, regardless of the way they look, um, regardless of the way they believe. I believe he helps all of his children So by performing the acts of service myself for other people, it helps me to understand how he loves all of us and wants to do good for all of us and wants to bless all of us. So it's definitely opened my mind, my understanding in some small way to who he is and what makes him such a kind and benevolent God.
1: Well, I'll go back to when we we participate in these banquets at this Christian ministry that serviced the homeless and the and the low-income families I mean it it was usually a four or five hour shift and we were usually exhausted but we came away just energized and exhilarated that we've been able to participate in that and been able to see people for the way that God sees them and be able to serve them and be with them and love them for that time
2: that we were together. Thank you for joining us for today's show. It's an experiment in the making, taking a subject and developing it by speaking with several different people. And hopefully we've introduced you to how different people in different faiths can work to be God's hands. And maybe you, like me, thought of a few ways you could help people around you as you listen today. That's our time for today. We hope you enjoyed this episode exploring ideas of service and charitable works across different faith traditions. In the future, we hope to explore forgiveness, grief, prayer, artistic expression, prosperity, the ecstatic, and family life. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. If you enjoy the show, be sure to leave a five-star review or comment where you get your podcasts and help spread the word. Our Twitter feed, at InGoodFaithBYU. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon, right here, in good faith.